Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to Christine de Buchler, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne over in Australia, and Kim Marie Spence, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Solent Uni in the UK. And we're going to be discussing their new book, Global Cultural Economy. So welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, this is a great book. It's really interesting, and it's got... Uh, I guess in some ways the kind of perfect perspective, um, both in terms of contributing to the study of cultural economy, but also actually now as we're uh, sort of keenly aware of the global nature um, of the cultural economy um, and indeed the global nature of uh, various other parts of economy and society. And the place I'd like to start actually is with the title and with with that kind of uh, key term in the title, this idea of of kind of global and, and really right up front at the very start of the book, you, you kind of introduce this this idea and you um, engage with the reader in, in thinking about what it means. So I'm quite interested to know why you, in your collaboration, um, kind of focused on this idea of, of a global um, to study the cultural economy. Um, I, I think... If 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 I may start, um, I think it um, it comes from two different um, well from two different places. I, I would say on the one hand, um, and I think that's the, the the most important thing perhaps is that it comes out of a very well our unease with the fact that the majority of um, you could say textbooks of, of leading scholarly um, works on the cultural creative industries, that the majority of them are so um, focused and based in the West in the sense that they focus on France, on the UK, on the US, on Germany. There might be some exceptions from other places, but the vast majority of, of our abstract understanding of how these cultural and creative industries work derive from these contexts and that then becomes the basis on which we um, try to understand how these industries work all around the world because whether we like it or not the notion of cultural and creative industries has really globalized has entered almost every country in the world in some way or another in their policies so what we try to do with this book, and this is very much an initial attempt because it's a very short book and it's a very big planet, um, we've tried to say, look, we have to incorporate some of the understandings and ideas of how these industries actually work in different parts of the world. So that's that's where it came from that we said we're trying to de-westernize um, right. or you could say decolonize the the approach to cultural creative industries so that's the the rationale behind it 
And then there's very much the practical consideration that the book very much reflects where Kim Marie and I have done most of our empirical work on, on the subject matter, with Kim Marie having worked in Jamaica, India, and South Korea, and myself primarily in West Africa, but also in Southeast Asia and Central Asia. So that those perspectives come in and make it kind of help us work towards that idea that we are trying to move beyond a Western corpus of, of literature on oh. this subject. Um, but without claiming, and that's what we also clarify in the book, without claiming that this book necessarily applies to every place on the planet. It's an attempt to make it global, not a blueprint for each and every country around the world. Exactly. And I, I would add that um, also part of the global is... Uh, um, and it's a long-standing discussion in political studies from which I've moved into the creative industries where there's a, the, you know, the analytical heft also tends to come from the West, for want of a better term. And so um, there's a need for what we try to do, an introduction to um, having theoretical um, building theories or building paradigms from case studies from elsewhere, right? And I mean, I know in even in the use of terms like elsewhere, etc., you're you're almost reifying um, these distinctions, but it is what it is. I mean, and, and, and I think there was a deliberate. The um, book starts with an example from South Korea, and that was deliberate, but also it was an apt example as well i mean i, I was gonna say we're gonna get um into some of these um global examples and, and i think the real strength of the book is um not just the kind of eclecticism in terms of like having lots of different um examples from lots of different nations but also how you know we see the kind of issues and, and patterns reoccurring in um the creative economy cultural economy even you know in nations that are really very different but before we do that a clue in, in what i've just said in terms of the creative economy the cultural economy the creative industries the cultural economy uh, the cultural industries what actually are we are we talking about here and, and why i guess and this is part of um both the introduction and, and the earlier chapters in the book why is there so much kind of uh, struggle, maybe confusion, uh, debate over definitions and, and wider kind of definitions uh, matter in this context. Uh, do you want to start? Should I start, Christian? <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, let me take the cultural versus creative, start there. Um, you know, I myself, I'm currently in a department of creative industries and creative industries has been the term that um, I think has become globalized. But there is a, there is a, um, there is a political aspect to that, um, which had to do with the inclusion of um, technological industries, for example. Our choice of cultural was to make it... Um, was to ensure that we included both cultural and economic values and the interplay within that, um, within the, these industries such as film and music. So it's almost, uh, in one sense, we're 
specifying exactly which industries we wanted to talk about. So we're not talking about software industries per se. Um, but we also wanted to expand it to include not just an economization of those industries, but to recognize that they have economic value and cultural value, and there's an interplay um, between them that depends on which context. So it's cultural is to ensure that that kind those aspects are highlighted. Um, we reference um, one discussion between like Daniel Matto and and Toby Miller where they talk about are all industries cultural? Some industry um, and I think we agree with Toby that not that not all industries are cultural because of that symbolic and cultural value that certain industries have versus others. Yeah, and I think that, that very much reflects what, what, what we intended to do. And I think, I mean, what, what I would just add is, 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 is kind of in a, in, a, in a slightly more abstract way, perhaps, between culture and creative, we try to narrow down the debate and say mm-hmm. the shift from culture creative industries started including so many different things that it became difficult to tell what the external boundaries of these creative industries are like where do they stop so we try to kind of rein that in a little bit and say we're looking at a slightly smaller area more artistic and um you know basically what 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 you would call i mean what we used to call cultural industries, um, yeah. film, literature, music, um, the, the, these things that are distinctly, distinctly cultural, that's what we try to kind of um, bring the discussion back to. Um, but at the same time, we try to open up the discussion, like, like Kimberly said, beyond a very narrow understanding of what these industries are. By looking into the, the kind of an anthropological understanding of the economy surrounding it, um, the the you know the relationships of value, like you mentioned, and and how that how that how that pans out in practice, because you can say well, or let let me give give an easy example. One of one of the things that came up a lot in my field work, um, particularly in Burkina Faso in in, in West Africa, was that. A lot of people I, I would speak to said, "Yes, creative industries or cultural industries—that's—that's a—it's a really interesting idea, but we don't have cultural industries here." And I said, "Well, I, I found it a bit surprising because they did have festivals, they did have cinema production, they did have music studios and musicians playing live gigs. They publish books, they have crafts, they have all kinds of things that." however imperfect, are functional. So by trying to move beyond that restrictive idea of what these industries are or what they should be, perhaps, we try to open it up and say, well, we have these complex um, relationships of exchange, um, which can't really be captured in that metaphor of the industry, which for a lot of people does really, you know, bring up an idea of a very clear um, value chains and, and kind of ways of, of, of production. So 
that that's essentially what we try to do kind of narrow down the focus between cultural creative but open it up between industry and economy i mean if that's at the um kind of definitional um level maybe we could get into some some examples to um to see how this this carries through um the various kind of discussions and, and themes that come up in the book. Um, one that is, you know, kind of immediately interesting um, in terms of those boundaries um, and maybe an, an expansive version of those boundaries is this question about who and what is included and who and what is yeah. is left out. And you, you give examples from, from Bollywood, um, particularly the, the idea of kind of uh, nepotism, but also you, you kind of um, situate that alongside a discussion of the music industry in Jamaica. So it'd be really interesting to hear about this question of a, of a kind of inclusive global cultural economy using these two very uh, diverse um, examples. Well, but the Bollywood example is um, prime and, um, and actually just read from uh, – um, some follow-up work from a younger scholar on that. And um, so, for example, Bollywood is a film industry. It's one of the largest film industries in the world in terms of the number of films produced, um, but not as um, profitable as um, Hollywood in terms of cinema receipts, etc. right? Um, and... In, our in, in the discussion of Bollywood, for example, you're, we talk about inclusion, etc. So you realize it is a film industry and there is an, econo there's an economic organization for how fil film industries in the world are organized and realizing that there is a global macro structure for that. But even with there being international, or, uh, international structure and organization that of film industries, they differ um, in the sense that the this socio-political context in which a Bollywood um, lives, um, socio-economic context where you, it's it's built around a particular group of um, families. It's not an industry that is heavily um, supported and subsidized by its government. Um, it's actually the only industry in India that is double taxed. And so that has implications for the local manifestation of the film industry, the Indian, the Hindi film industry that is Bollywood, right? As opposed to where we have discussions of the Chinese film industry. Again, there's a global structure and how distribution happens, but also the fact that the 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 support of the Chinese film industry is 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 very much state-driven or has a lot of public support and that has implications for what its local structure looks like, right? And so it's having, it's recognizing that there, there is this film industry and what a film industry looks like, but also how much of the local organization um, is based on the context, cultural, political, social, in which these industries emerge. Yes, I think the only thing that I would add is is the the kind of very big picture reflection that we try to kind of clarify that 
despite all the optimism around, you know, all things digital bringing down um, barriers to global success, there are still very real impediments um, for people all around the world to actually make it. Um, so it's not because you have an internet connection and a laptop that all of a sudden um, it has become much easier to become, you know, the next, I don't know, whether whether it's a musician or writer or film star. There's still very, inter uh, very interesting and very important um, kind of... Um, mechanisms social and cultural mechanisms in place that make it easier for some people whether it's within a society like the nepotism that we discuss in the case of bollywood or between different societies right. like the balance between jamaican um, royalties and, and how they are divided um, in terms of what they receive from overseas and how that gets distributed and what they pay out to foreign rights holders so these kinds of dynamics are what we're trying to, you know, flesh out a bit through these examples of, of, of in, in asking what what do these changes really mean that we've seen in the past few decades, but also what might it take for these um, for these activities to become um, more equitable, so more people can actually, um, you know, hope to earn a decent living from what they create, and. I'm we come from, uh, or as, as a final thing, perhaps, it comes from the realization that we'll probably always have far more people creating um, expressions that um, they won't get paid for, um, or we'll always have more people who create things for the love of it, who will maybe not make it into their job, and that's absolutely fine. But it would be great if there would be a greater number of people who are trying to make it who have a decent shot at it um and and that, in that sense we're trying to you know really applaud the kind of um you know love of work and amateur work that a lot of people pu are putting into the arts but also the fact that a lot of people are struggling very hard um to make their lives work um also the thing that brings them revenue and sustenance I, I wanted to just add two points to that. Um, one, earlier I had mentioned the, that aspect of the, the analytical heft or strength that comes from expanding um, the, 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 rain, the, the geography of, of empirical um, case studies used. And that, inter, that issue between countries was one such. Um, you'll see that we talk about colonization and, and post-coloniality in the because the the international economic structures do bear a part dependency. I've heard different terms for it. Um, one of my favorite is the ghosts of colonization that continue to haunt um, international economic structures. So I have to cite Clearborne um, there, but um, and so that kind of analysis or awareness came from the expansion of those kind of empirical examples. So the importance of that in terms of being, of adding that intellect analytical strength. And also just to know that we did dedicate the book to those who are trying to make it in the global cultural economy as part of the recognition of the, 
the struggle it is in contrast to the um you know the utopian promise that uh creative industry started with i mean it, it is the i guess kind of you know workers laborers um individual struggles perspective um through through those examples earlier on in the book um there's a substantial um part of the book that engages with what we might think of as um formal forms of cultural policy and i guess yeah. one of the big questions and, and you know it, it, it's been alluded to actually in um your comment came about um Bollywood and, and state funding is why governments kind of um, intervene to fund and support culture. And if we've heard from you know, the Bollywood example, if we touched on uh, the music industry, what about examples from uh, Korea and, and and from China in terms of this question about why governments are funding and, and supporting culture? Uh, Christian, should, I, should you want to talk about our grand taxonomy? <laughs> Oh, you go ahead if you want. <laughs> All right. So um, the I think one of uh, the contributions we make, it's so strange to talk about oneself like that, is um, this taxonomy of how, of the reasons um, for, well, the, pers- the perspectives that different governments have on the creative economy. Um, we had five perspectives. Uh, one was um, aspirational, well, um, aspirational in the sense that being, and this came from a, an understanding that in a world where the creative industries and cultural industries are now seen as a new, a new badge of honor, that being um, considered, there is, there's a certain soft power, there's a certain nation brand that is attached to supporting these industries. Um, and so there is the aspirational, there is the um, celebratory of, you know, or at which I, I think Dave alluded to earlier, where there is a sense that if all good things come from support of the creative industries, ec- economic growth, development, tourism, etc. And so it's almost not um, and not recognizing the nuances and some of the contradictions um, of the cultural economy, such as issues of who get who becomes a success, issues of access, etc. Um, there's a refusenik um, perspective of where um, one holds so strongly to the cultural aspect of it and almost um, a descendant of Adorno um, in not wanting to see it as a mere economic industry. Um, and there's some of that um, element in the lack of funding for Bollywood. Although um, in the, I think, two years since the book has been published, there have been some changes in policy Um happening in India since. Uh, there are two more. <laughs> um, uh, um, so, so in a way, if, 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 you, if, if you allow me to kind of step in, um, I, I think 
in a way, the way we the way in which we see the the, the involvement of governments is is by the kind of narrative they try to spin around not just culture itself or creativity itself, but about what the nation is is, is trying to be. So in a sense, um, you know, embracing culture creative industries can can make you look like 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 Tim suggested, can make you look modern and forward looking and, and open to the world and, and kind of it can create that sense that you're really um, you know embracing all the good bits of globalization. Um, you know, you, you're playing your part as a nation state in that global um, arrangement where we're all trading with each other and that's all beautiful and very nice. And that's where that aspirational bit comes in, which sometimes overlaps with what we call the celebratory approach or, or a kind of celebratory understanding of what these industries are, which often really oversells um, the importance of, 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 these, of these industries. Um, but I think, in a sense, what happens here, irrespective of, of, of these different perspectives, which we primarily use as a kind of analytical tool to work through all the examples that we, that we um, propose, is that on the one hand, you have that kind of bigger cultural narrative that, that governments use um, by embracing or kind of try to create by embracing the, these cultural creative industries, which is you know, much the same, like, like we used, we've used culture and, and heritage for a really long time to create the idea that we are, you know, a nation that, that, that is, that is, that has always been based on, on the idea of having a shared culture. So that the whole idea of soft power is, is as old as, as, as the nation state in a sense, it's now with the technologies and with the, the, the processes of trade that we have, it's become in a way easier to kind of do that in a much larger scale and to do that in a kind of global competition for prestige. But what is, what is very, very interesting in this whole embracing of um, that nation branding, soft power idea um, as part of, 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 these, of these policies and industries is that it doesn't necessarily come with a very um, um, with a very helpful understanding of the labor that goes into this, mm-hmm. because you can celebrate creative industries without celebrating or without acknowledging the fact that these are the livelihoods of people in a very precarious industry, where it's incredibly difficult to make a living, where no matter how you look at it the big stars are really the winners, both culturally, socially, and economically, um, which means that the vast majority of people who are trying to make it really tend to lose out. So when countries really say, oh, we're going to brand our city as a creative capital or a cultural capital, or we're going to have this creative tourism strategy, or we're going to become a creative nation or whatever it is, it is very much building that meta narrative about what the country is and aspires to be rather than often a kind of critical engagement and self-assessment of what goes into these industries and how, you know, how, how challenging it can be to, to, to make these things work. And that's of course something that we don't have to explain to you, Dave, Um, you know, 
you know, you, you, you realize that better than anyone else because of the work that you've done on this in, in Britain. So I think there, there, there's a lot of tension around kind of why do countries use these terms? What are they trying to say? And I think, I think often it, there's an overlap of different elements. Um, sometimes right. it's very much trying to, you know, just follow the trend. Sometimes it's, um, you know, the only option that anyone sees within that, you know, local administration, whether it's of a city or of a country. I mean, it, it can be very, very difficult to, to, to see another possibility of, of trying to do well economically. So in that sense, between, yeah, between very well-intended um, efforts and, 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 and some delusions, perhaps, I think, yeah, we're, everyone is trying to, you know, create something that works. Whereas, of course, and that's that's the flip side, for some people, especially this, this kind of very kind of um, excessive focus on innovation and, and all the creative destruction that comes with it, this whole narrative, this whole idea of cultural creative industries is a very nice way to, um, you know, to dismantle all kinds of public institutions that have long um, been in place to provide all kinds of um, cultural expressions. They haven't existed everywhere. They don't exist everywhere. But it, it does It does really kind of come with a great possibility to push through a strong neoliberal agenda if that's what, you know, the intention is. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the purpose of comes from right, right area, which I guess I could distill really straightforwardly into the question of is, uh, you know, a global cultural economy a sustainable thing? Um, and I think sustainability is, uh, I guess, a perfect framework for thinking about the contradictions. You know, if we've brought up questions about who gets in, if we've brought up questions about, um, you know, the frameworks that we might think about um, cultural policy and, and various nation states activities. Well, on a really basic level, there's, there's this question of can any of this be sustained in the context of, um, you know, the potential environmental um, catastrophe that comes alongside certain forms, certain practices in um, cultural economy. Mm. Well, mm. this 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 is a question that um, uh, is 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 a very tricky one because a lot of the 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 UN reports that we've used as a kind of a primary um, as primary data across, like throughout the book, they they they, they often claim that um, these industries or this cultural economy is intrinsically um, sustainable because um, the argument goes the raw product creativity is inexhaustible and resides in every human being. And so far, so good. Um, we are all indeed um, more or less to the same extent able to be creative. Um, but that's, of course, you know, as, as we mentioned and discussed earlier in, in, in terms of uh, inclusivity is, is 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 questionable. Who can realize that, that 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 potential? But when it then comes to the way this industry works, you'll see that. I mean, 
if you binge the latest season of whatever um, um, series on whichever streaming platform, this will use up an, a large amount of electricity for the data centers, um, producing all kinds of um, cultural expressions takes up a lot of real energy, creates a lot of real waste and does all kinds of things that go against what anyone would consider to be a sustainable society. So the same, I mean, of course, things have improved there, but festivals, you know, used to be gigantic piles of waste. Things have shifted there a little bit, but even so, there are these really massive um, environmental implications in terms of energy, water, and waste that cultural production and consumption um, include. So what we try to put forward or try to argue is that the cultural economy is not intrinsically good for sustainability or sustainable development, but it can, in a variety of ways, help us engage with that big, big societal question around how do we make that transition towards sustainability? It can really play a role there if the, the people involved in the cultural economy make that effort. So and that's and that's where we then say, well, on the one hand, you can say you can say yes, when it comes to artistic expression, the 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 the, the texts to use the cultural studies kind of framework that we that we produce. The, the texts of this of, of this culture of the cultural economy can actually explicitly address um, you know environmental challenges like for example the work of you know major artists like Olafur Eliasson um, who works on climate change right. very clear very clear possibility in the same way um, you know we can engage with um, um, policies and practices and organizational models that ensure that what we do in the sector is sustainable in a more kind of social economic way, that artists are able to live, that audiences are able to afford um, the things that are created, and that we create an infrastructure and, 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 and a livelihood and, 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 and a kind of an environment, a social environment around the arts and around culture that, that can sustain itself either with the help of public funds or, or not, that, that's, that's besides the point. Um, but that, that sector can sustain itself. Right. Then a third point was that we can also think of this in, in terms of um, these organizations and practices becoming you know, very aware of how they run, uh, how they are run as organizations. So you could almost see it as a kind of, you know, a kind of prefigurative politics where um, a theater company or a, or a music festival says, we are going to show what is possible within our organization in the hope that others will do the same. You know, using less energy, creating less waste, being more careful with planning of tours and so on. There, there are plenty of possibilities, but it's something where a very deliberate step has to be taken which an organization like Julie's Bicycle in the UK has um, taken really significant steps towards. And then finally, and, and this, is, this, is, this is a point where, um, you know, questions become a bit more um, 
a bit more open, open-ended, uh, I, I would say, or we would say, um, and that is that what can also happen through um, this cultural economy is that we start reconfiguring um, the kind of um, the kind of citizenship that we relate to, because if if we can use these cultural and creative industries as 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 nation building and soft power in the 21st century, we can also use it to support an, an understanding of what it means to be an environmental citizen, a citizen of a certain environment. Um, and there's there's a broad variety of perspectives um, within environmental philosophy that, that, that speaks to that. But we're scratching the surface by saying, well, maybe rather than... Um, pursuing a kind of national identity building, we can pursue some sort of environmental um, identity building citizenship through cultural expressions that can help us create the political framework to tackle these big questions. So that's kind of, I mean, we're not saying, you know, these, these organizations, these UN bodies are wrong. There is no sustainability whatsoever in the sector. But we do mention or we do argue that it is a very challenging thing to pursue a, a real um, transformative understanding of sustainability yeah. through through the sector. Yeah. And, and our, that expanded definition of um, what sustainability is. So... In terms of wrapping up, um, I mean, we, we sort of scratched the surface of everything that's that's in the book, and you know, I urge people to read it. It's, it's full of, as, as we've alluded to, these you know, rich range of examples from all over the world, and, and picks up on, on various different themes. But I'm interested in in what sort of comes next after the book for you two as a as a writing partnership, um, in terms of you know maybe a future project um, pursuing. Um, you know, a new research agenda on global cultural economy, um, or you know, is um, is your work going to go in, in very different uh, directions? Um, I would say, I think individually, our work is going in different directions. But um, we we are talking about a um, a joint project moving forward, inspired actually by. Um, the experience of what a book doing touring this this particular book um, and the reception to it and realizing that um, that the perspective that we both have from con- um, combining our own work together and then uh, and um, having that inductive approach to theories or um, theorization of um, the cultural economy uh, has inspired us to delve into the issue of a need for that um, more global, more cosmopolitan approach um, within the study of the cultural economy, or to use the term creative industries. Um, And so that will be the substance of our next project. So now we have to do it, Christian, because we've told people. But the reception to it was definitely something that was 
um, just one having, I think that kind of approach, that kind of cosmopolitan approach. Also, um, even our own partnership of coming from our own different positionalities and being aware of that in our work or being forced to be aware of that in having to work together. Um, and that, that was a, the source of a lot of questions as well. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I, th- I think the, 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 one of the really important questions that, that, that will try to address, I mean, is really that, that, that question of how can we ensure that this industry or these industries or, or this economy is able to actually, um, tell stories of, you know, more and a more diverse range of people, because it's one, it's one thing to, to have, you know, a whole lot of cultural expressions, but then the question is who creates them, who has the ability to speak up. And I think that, that is the big question in terms of that diversity and, and that, that global kind of, inequity in terms of who can take up that role and who can um right yeah and and even the different reception i you know we um we had discussions so for example the taxonomy that i referred to which is you know very much i I like to see it as an update to um hillman shashan and makahi's own um taxonomy um it's very much the topic, what, I, what I'm asked about a lot in the UK, et cetera. But when I'm in the Caribbean or um, uh, I, I think invitations from the African continent, et cetera, the focus has been on issues of ownership where we talk about, you know, who gets to own the structure of intellectual property laws, et cetera. And so um, I believe our next partnership will focus on... Um, some that diver the need for diversity and diversity itself as not just an option but an essential part of this this kind of study. 